0: Hello, oh, buddies, and welcome once again, fellow Franco fans, fans of Uncle Jess. I am your host, Jason Rudy from Desperate Visions Productions from uh, Sacramento, California Film Company. Uh, in 2021, I will be uh, starting the company back up again after a two, three year hiatus, and uh, will be producing at least one film. Hopefully more, but uh, you know we'll see how it goes. Probably about the second half of the year, I'm thinking getting everything. Um, you know, I got all my scripts going now, and uh, by the time everybody gets the COVID shots and gets the second dose, and people will be ready to go, and so I'm thinking maybe so- summertime would be a good good base to start filming again, if not sooner, maybe spring. So yeah, that's that's uh, down the pipeline, and uh, we'll see how that goes. But uh, right now we're here to worship the mighty Jess Franco. And this is episode 18, where we deal with the great film Faceless. Uh, that was made in 87 and released in 88. This is episode 18, and Faceless was film 157. Uh, This week, we have a Zoom episode from Los Angeles, California, uh, we had a little bit of technical difficulties with the internet uh connection um, had uh, a lot of people on and i don't know it was it was kind of a bad connection so we had some dropouts but <clears throat> with the magic of editing i'm going to f- fix that right up um, as i record this i haven't edited yet so uh i'm going to do some patchwork on that and it'll, it'll be good we got a lot of good stuff done and uh you know we're both professionals so Speaking of professionals, that's why I had to Zoom is because we have uh, a second-time returning guest, the talented uh, and lovely Amber Kloss from Los Angeles, California, Uh, motion picture television actress, theater actress, uh, originally from Sacramento, California, and uh, yeah, she's down there and uh, doing good stuff, and uh, I've talked her into now doing two episodes with me, and she's... uh, Knocked her out of the park both times, so I thank her for doing that. Um, and yeah, she's a big film fan and likes all the cool stuff and uh, has a lot of cool friends, And which will be a uh, another guest coming up that I have uh, on a future episode that we'll be doing, and you'll see that coming up soon. Um, that's going to be one that's uh, going to do the other side of the mirror for that one. Uh, but yeah, so back to this. This is episode 18 again, film 157, Faceless. Um, this, uh, let's see. English language video DVD title is Faceless. France. It's a French production, uh, 1987. Um, the original theatrical title in the country of origin is Les Predators de la Nuit. I guess, uh, would be The Predators of Night. Or, um, alternative title, Les Depardores de la Noche, Spanish titles. The, the Desperados of the Night. Uh, let's see. That's an interesting title. Sem Face, the Portuguese DVD title. And then there was a Greek one uh, without a face. Dijos Prospo. Pros, prosopo. Stihos Prosopo, without a face, Greek title. Uh, Italian title, Evolentori della Notte. Uh, production company, René Chateau Productions out of Paris. Theatrical distributor was Editions uh, René Chateau of Paris. Timeline on this, the shooting date, uh, December of 87 to January of 88. Uh, they basically turned around and released it uh, in June in France of '88. So, like five months later, that's pretty good. Uh, there's no Spanish, British, or American theatrical release on this, just the French theatrical release. Uh, the theatrical running time on this is 97 minutes. Wow, that's cool. It just shot for the French market. Uh, DVD running time converted. Uh, is uh 102 minutes 36 seconds. Okay. Uh director on this is just Franco, producer Rene Chateau. Uh story Rene Chateau. Uh writing as Fred Castle. Adaptation Pierre Report, Rene Chateau as Fred Castle. Jean Marizin, Michael Lebron. Music Romano Musumara. Um <laughs> and then we have the songs Faceless by Romano Musumara and C. Weissman, performed by Vicente Thomas. Just Imagination by Romano Musara, Martino, and Weissman, with kind permission. Uh, there's a the song In the Heart of the City by the same writers. And uh, cinematography is Maurice Filus. Uh, second unit is Zin- Zin- Jacques. Valhau. Editor is Christine Pinsau. Uh, let's see. Special effects, Jacques Gustineau Okay. he's He has quite a fit. Yeah, there's like nine set pieces for him, so he was quite busy. So, uh, the cast on this, um, of course, Helmut Berger is uh, Dr. Frank Flamend. Uh, Bridget Leahy, uh, the beautiful Bridget Leahy, one of my favorite um, cult actresses. Uh veteran of a few genre Roland films and a few Jess Franco films. She did, uh, was it Burning Up Inside or Burning Up All Over? It's got a couple different titles. She did that one first for Jess Franco and then uh, Dark Mission and then this. So yeah, she did three. Uh, Chris Mitchum, of course, as Sam Morgan. Telly Savalas, the great Telly Savalas, as uh, Terry Holland. Uh, Stephanie Audra as... Madame Sheridan. Christopher Jean as Ingrid Flamand. Antron Differing as Dr. Carl Hans Moser. Carolyn Monroe as Barbara Holland. Howard Vernon as the mighty Professor E. Orloff. Uh, Tilda Thanner as Madame Francois. Uh, Florine Grin as Florence Grin. Gerard Zockberg as Gordon. Uh, Henry Polier as Commissioner Legree Laurie Cheveden as Receptionist Uh, Emile Chevalier as Melissa Marcel Philippot as Maxence, Tony Awak as as Dudu Uh, Monet Delmance as Baroness Dora Thomas as a singer, Danielle Barretta as the man from Bour Buda Antoine Alaretta's Karen, Isabella Shokert, is, let's see, who else have we got on this, uh, Alan Bart, Theory, rec- and Daniel Graham as Inspector Wallace. Um, so yeah, this has quite a bit of cast for Jess Franco film too. Uh, let's see. So yeah, on this, uh, we give, give the rundown. Um, when I talked to, uh, Amber about that, it's quite a lengthy synopsis of the film. Um, gave you the release dates the different titles uh dvd blu-ray release i watched this on the shriek show dvd uh, that was put out here in america it's got a uh let's see let me look at it here uh yeah this is the faceless uh dvd shriek show put out in 2003 um It's got uh, audio commentary with director Jess Franco and star Lena Romay, interviews with Jess Franco, Lena Romay, Chris Mitchum, and Carolyn Carolyn Monroe, uh, original theatrical trailer and photo gallery. Um, I watched the interview with Jess Franco on this, and it's it's good. It's like about a 15-minute thing, I think. Um, But, yeah, I haven't watched Lena yet or Mitchum or or Monroe, and I haven't listened to the commentary, but I'm definitely going to do that very soon. Uh, but, yeah, it's definitely good. Um, but, yeah, it's funny. This came out on DVD in 2003, so, say, two, uh, 2004. So, like, 17 years, you would think that something with Helmut Berger, Richard Leahy, Tully Savalis, Jeff Franco, Chris Mitchum, all those, you know, that it would be at least on another DVD release or especially Blu-ray with all the stuff that's being put out on Blu-ray that this hasn't came out. But, uh yeah, there's definitely a fan base for this. There's it's a good eighties gore film. Uh even if you didn't know who Jess Franco was and watched this as an eighties gore movie, it's definitely up there with, you know, all the set pieces and everything and all the films that it, not doesn't steal from, but that you know, that he's a set pieces from that you recognize. Um so yeah, on this, uh let's see. Uh some things is like um, reading again from uh, Flowers of Perversion, Volume 2, by Stephen Thrower. As the opening logo appears for French producer René Chateau to the strains of Richard Strauss's Thus Spoke Zarathustra, one can't help but smile. Talk about your big build-up. Baseless, or... Les Predateurs de la Noite, to use a more dignified title, is just Franco's most expensive horror film since Jack the Ripper in 1976, and his starrest cast since The Bloody Judge in 1969. That we cut from Richard Strauss to the George Michael-esque crooning of Faceless, performed by Vincenzo Toma, Provides the first of many laughs, some, it must be said, completely unintentional. Faceless is not a comedy per se, but if Patsy from Absolutely Fabulous ever directed a horror film, it would probably look like this it's a glossy, nasty, sardonic update of the awful Dr. Orloff, transplanting the story into a glitzy world of upscale Parisian nightclubs, coquettled high couture. And expensive cosmetic surgery clinics. The result is a cartoon collision between Orloff, Mario Bava's Blood and Black Lace, and Robert Altman's Preda Porte, with added surgery and chainsaw murders. That sounds irresistible, and why wouldn't it? Be assured that Franco delivers all the amusements that come up with. S- I'm sorry. Uh, be assured that Franco delivers all the amusement the comparison suggests. For only the third time in his career, after Jack the Ripper and the Bloody Moon, he employs genuinely gruesome special effects. Faceless was made at the height of the pre-CGI prosthetics boom, and Franco doesn't disappoint, delivering a chainsaw, beheading, take that, pieces, a hypodermic needle to the eye, in your face, dead and buried, a power drill through the cranium, up yours, driller killer. A maggot-infested, severed head. Move over, macabre. And the removal of an entire face, which then displayed to the horrified donor. Don't slam the door on the way out. Texas Chainsaw Massacre too. There's even a meat... There's even a meat... A neat, not meat. There's even a neat scissors through the throat. Scene reminiscent of Bloody Moon. And if a man can't plagiarize himself, what's the world coming to? And if this wasn't enough to be gaining on with faceless peppers, the mayhem with a delicious script that veers between the unintentional camp and the knowingly outrageous. With Rich ball, Dr. Flannard. Tells a young woman upon who he once performed plastic surgery that she's blossomed. She lavishly strokes his crotch and says, by the looks of things, you're blossoming too. There's something deliriously garish and very funny about this slinky sexuality and faceless. It's like a parody of those oafish, serious, erotic dramas Zelma King was cranking out in the late 1980s. Franco taps into this tacky, superficial crassness of 80s pop culture in a film that's half-indulgence of the tackiness and half-ironic corruption of it. Amid the self-obsessed high society ninnies around him, Flamend has no difficulty hiding his wickedness. His clinic is full of elderly women, desperate to restore the appearance of use, of youth. All, quite a a flutter with the young miracle worker strolls their way. Uh, let's see. Once again, Franco is telling the story of a man trying to restore the beauty of a disfigured woman, in this case his sister, but despite the deja vu, there are plenty of changes to hold our attention. A significant advance on the previous versions of the Orloff story is that the recipient of the grafts is a conscious, willing participant with no qualms about the systematic destruction of her donors. Instead of just another cataconic... Catatonic, innocent, being fussed over by a psychotic loved one, we have a story not only of obsessive fascist love, but obsessive fascist vanity. It's one thing for a woman who's had acid thrown in her face to be angry and bitter and inclined to abuse her attractive sex partners and esteem grudge fits. It's another thing for her to gladly accept faces peeled from innocent victims in place of her own. Ingrid, like her brother and her his decadent lover, Nathalie, has the blithe sense of entitlement that comes with permanent wealth. So far, as she's concerned. It's too bad for those mutilated hookers and models who cheapen their gifts of beauty anyway. Better it belongs to a woman of culture and sophistication. Yeah, almost like culture vampires. Like these rich people feast on the uh, less wealthy, like a class structure, which is really interesting because that's a good commentary on society and on rich and poor and and you know people that have and have not. Um, so yeah, uh, the big part of this movie is, of course, the uh, the uh, Professor Orloff scene. It's short. It's a, it's like only about five minutes. Um, And you have Howard Vernon and uh, Lena Romay as uh, Professor Orloff's wife. And uh, it was a cool thing to have him in it as the last appearance of Dr. Orloff. And uh, he has a really, really good, nice scene with that. Um, And uh, he goes into his history, and you find out that Dr. Orloff now um, worked in Dachau with the SS, which adds another layer to the character, one that modernizes him. Uh, far more effectively than the 1973's Eyes of Dr. Orloff, or 1982's Sinister Dr. Orloff. Um, Let's see. And we also have the uh, first um, film in which Franco explicitly refers to Nazi Germany. We've had Latin American fascists many times before, which makes sense, of course, from a director who's lived under General Franco's regime. Uh so yeah, those two. Um then of course uh, Anton Diffring comes in and like steals the show. Uh let's see, what else do we have? Um Yeah, so I'm gonna cut to that. So Cast and Crew. Faceless features one of the starriest cast of Franco's career. He says that a few times. Sadly, Anton Differing's memorable performance as Moser was almost his last. He died aged 70 on the 20th May of 1989, having followed Faceless with two more parts, a role in the Doctor Who serial, Silver Nemesis, filmed in June and July of 1988, and another in Frank Stryker's film adaptation of a romantic TV series, Anna, shot between August and October 1988. Apparently, the role of Dr. Orloff, just a short scene in the finished film, was something Franco desperately wanted to expand, intending to make his venerable old monster the unlikely savior of the female lead. René Chateau didn't agree, and what could have been a fond farewell to his signature character remains just a brief but poignant wave of the hand. Tully Savalas, whose previous work in the horror genre included Mario Bava's Sublime, Lisa and the Devil, and Eugene and Eugenio Martin's loopy but exciting Horror Express back in 1972 may have little to do except yell at Chris Mitchum and deliver some telephone acting but it's a pleasure to see him again. Amen. And yeah, he doesn't say who uh, who loves your baby. He says chow at the end of a phone call. It's waiting for him to say who loves your baby but he doesn't say that. So, Uh, it's just personal that down. Uh, Let's see. Helmut Berger of Visconti's favorite actor, and no stranger to kinky horror, as uh, in Dorian Gray and uh, uh, Tito Brass's uh, Salon Kitty, brings Franco the benefit of his expertise, ably fleshing out the blandly wicked and humorous Dr. Flamand <clears throat> S- Stephanie Adron, BAFTA award-winning star of Le Boucher and Bebette's Feast, brings neurotic edginess to her brief but memorable role as... Miss Sherman, the patient whose paranoid suspicions result in the afore, afore, aforementioned ocular trauma, I must say, Flamond would make a lousy poker player, but he all but admits there's something dodgy going on as soon as Miss Sherman starts insinuating. Meanwhile on the B list there's the ever dependable Carol Monroe notching up another core film after her appearances in Maniac and Slaughter high while Chris Mitchum and Bridget Leahy are held over from Dark Mission. Mitchum is as awkward and unconvincing as ever, but Leahy is mostly excellent. I especially enjoyed her taunting Morgan when she locks him in with Barbara. Yeah, there's a cool scene where she locks him at the end and her face just keeps like staying in the little square smiling at him. And he keeps yelling, and she just, like, stands there and, like, taunts him, and she just, like, looks at him for, like, a little bit long, and they hold that shot a little too long, and she's just looking at him, like, fuck you, fuck you. It's, it's a really, really good scene. That's really good acting in her part. She plays it really well. Um, let's see. I especially enjoyed her taunting Morgan with when she locks in with Barbara. Elsewhere, though, she's perhaps a little too broad. The way she nods and smiles as Orloff gives the lowdown on Moser, it's as, if, it's, as, it's as if he's discussing arrangements for a garden arrangement, not the credentials of a Nazi butcher. However, when it's arguably overplayed, we're intended to read it as a sign of her total immorality as borne out later when she flirts with Moser before the second operation. You're amazing, doctor, and so different, she coos. Like, wow, it's not every day a girl gets to watch a dog cow surgeon at work. Music. With songs by Romano Musumara, sung by Italian crooner Vincenzo Tama, the music in Faceless has the phony dustings of wealth, class, and style, which artists like Duran Duran and ABC counterfeited from earlier genuine article stars like Brian Ferry and David Bowie. The title number, altogether now Destination Nowhere, Half a Mile to Paradise. Sounds like a rejected backing track from Brian Ferry's Boys and Girls album with a George Michael wannabe wailing over the top. By the way, to steal the comparison, Vincenzo Thomas' 2011 album Romantico features an Italian-language cover of Careless Whisper. So nice. Location. Paris. Connections. Uh, Bogart. Magritte. Magritte and Clouseau are referenced in dialogue that self-consciously note the cliches of the story's detective subplot other versions. Although there are no true variants of Faceless uh, Predators of the Night is essentially the same cut. I'd just like to take some time to complain about the awful, awful export title. Calling a movie faceless is just begging for critics to snicker about one-word reviews or films that review themselves. What was Rene Chateau thinking? Wouldn't the face stealers have struck a better note? Surely, your face or mine strikes the right balance between surgery and sex. How about why the wrong face? Anything but faceless. Yeah, I have like face off. You know, oops, no. Yeah, so. Um, but yeah, so actually that'd be kind of cool to do like this and do like a blending of this and into face off but anyway, so yeah, um, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a cool film um this was actually I mean I saw it a long time ago, like uh with a group of friends and stuff, but didn't really pay attention as much, but yeah, this is like my first true first time watching all the way through. I really like it. that damn song stuck in my head for like days, and it's still in my head, like uh let's see. It's like four days now. I've I've and this fucking song still in my head. So yeah, want you watch it, and the trailer, uh, actually, Faceless is on YouTube too. You can find a copy to watch on YouTube for free. And uh, the trailer's really funny because the trailer has like a lot of violence and it shows a lot of the kills and stuff with the like George Michael-esque sounding song uh, played over it. And it's like gonna be one of my favorite trailers because it just it's so stupid because the the music and 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 what you see, it just does not fit, and I love it so much, but yeah, so you can uh, see the trailer and the faceless on Facebook, sorry, not Facebook, on uh, YouTube, Uh, it's getting late, it's the end of the long work day, so yeah, I work, you know, nine hours, and then uh, do all the stuff at home, I have chickens, I feed my chickens and uh, take care of my hens, and then do, uh, try to sneak in one of these introductions here. And then uh, get on my editing, go to bed, go to work, all that good stuff. So anyway, but yeah, so Faceless is awesome. I really liked it. I recommend it. Watch it on uh, YouTube um, or, of course, get the DVD and cross our fingers that a Blu-ray re- is released. Well, it seems like when I talk about things, they happen. So you heard it here first. If I talk about Faceless, it'll be on Blu-ray before the end of 2021. Let's, like, make it happen. 'Cause you know, dude, seriously, it's like Helmut Berger, Richard Leahy, Tilly Savalas, Jess Franco, Carolyn Monroe. You know, and you know, and they can just poured over the like commentary track with Jess Franco. He's passed away, you got a cool extra thing here. Lena Romaine saying the same thing. You know, you have the photo gallery and interviews. Dude, put this on Blu-ray, it just come on, man. Dude, put on Blu-ray if we need it. Um so yeah, that's one of my mission statements too, man, is to get this on Blu-ray. Uh, praise and memory of Jess Franco, bringing the name and films of Jess Franco to new eyes and ears. And I think I'm doing that with this podcast. I'm definitely now I am. Uh, please download the episode. It increases our numbers. Um, in listening to it's great. Downloading it's even better. Even better than that is to rate and share on your Amazon, uh, um, um, on um, Apple Music or uh, Um iTunes, all that stuff, Uh, Spotify, if you can rate on that, I'm not sure, Um, but yeah, if you can uh, always, you know, subscribe, of course, subscribe, and uh, it's even better, so yeah, subscribe, download, tell friends, uh, tell everybody you know about Franco, tell everybody you know about this podcast, and let's uh, let people in on this cool secret, Uh, you can get a hold of us at FrancoObserver at Yahoo.com, F R A N C O O B S-E-R-V-E-R at yahoo.com um, yeah you can find us on Facebook we have our own Facebook page Instagram, you can always find us on Instagram, At us, I'm always putting new pictures of all the DVDs I buy uh, my collection's like really good I'm only missing maybe like 10 films of his, if that uh, and there you know some of the porno stuff and stuff I really don't care about as much But, uh, yeah, I'm pretty damn complete on that. And then, of course, just keep buying upgrades and different stuff like that. Um, uh, Yeah, you see all the T-shirts and all the cool stuff I buy. So check it out. Add the pages. Add us all that good stuff. Um, Hope everyone's doing well. And after this, you'll hear bumper music. You'll hear the trailer. And then you'll hear uh, the um, bumper music again. And then you'll hear uh, the review for faceless so yeah thank you all and uh have a good day upside down.
1: This is your last chance, Doctor. It is
0: very dangerous.
1: Get off me! (laughs) You're you're an animal! It sounds repay. Soon the price of freedom will fall. He was afraid to operate on living flesh.
0: Living flesh. <coughs> <Yeah>. <coughs> no. 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 <coughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Franco Observer Podcast. I am your host, coming to you from the universe beyond, Jason Rudy from Desperate Visions Productions. And uh, this is episode 18. Uh, We review the film Faceless uh, from 1988, Uh, film 157 from Jess Franco. And uh, I'm joined today Once again, uh, second appearance by a theater, film, and television actress, uh, originally from Sacramento, California, now been living in uh, Los Angeles, California, for 15 years. Let's uh, welcome Miss Amber Kloss.
1: Oh, hi there. It's good to be back. Thanks for having me. There
0: it is. Good. Well, uh, yeah, let me just say right off the top, it looks like we're having a little bit of technical difficulties, but things are recording, so I'll just do a little bit of editing and post, so, uh, you know, but... uh, but you know, I noticed like, uh, it's uh, on this episode, I think we're on a destination nowhere, uh, about a half mile from paradise. That must be why the internet's messing up. <laughs> so this week we watched the film faceless, uh, it was made in 1987 and, uh, came out in, uh, 1988 it was filmed December 87 to January 88, which is good timing because, uh, That's when we watched it here, uh, January, and it had a nice Christmas kind of setting in the beginning and the nice lights when they were going through town and that. So that was a really nice touch. And uh, it ended on like a New Year's toast, which I fucking kind of dug because it was like really good timing. I was like, wow, this is really cool. And it's like the evil people toasting at the end, you know. Spoiler alert, but, you know, if you haven't seen it by now, come on. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and uh, give the synopsis for the film. And then I'm going to ask Amber what she thought of it, and then I'm going to give her my thoughts, and we'll go from there. All right. Looks like we're recording still, so all is good. All right, synopsis. Successful cosmetic surgeon Dr. Frank Flamand is Christmas shopping with his business partner, Nathalie, and sister Ingrid when a former patient, Ms. Francois, throws acid at him in revenge for a botched operation. However, she misses Dr. Flamand and soaks Ingrid instead causing horrendous burns to her entire face. Nathalie and Flamin decide to abduct and kill young women with a view to performing a face transplant. Nathalie selects Barbara Holland, a model to whom she sells coke, drugging her and locking her in a cell in the basement of the clinic. Barbara is still wearing the immensely valuable watch she'd been modeling moments before she was abducted. Nathalie keeps it for herself. A week later in New York City, Barbara's father, Terry Holland, hires a private detective, Sam Morgan, to go and find her. In search of advice about facial transplantation, Flamond and Nathalie visit the renowned surgeon, Professor Orloff. Now a Catholic, Orloff tells them the only person who can successfully do the operation is Karl Moser, a one-time Nazi doctor who relishes working on living tissue. Back at the clinic, Nathalie discovers that her mute manservant, Gordon, has raped Barbara, more importantly, he has damaged her face in the process. Gordon is punished by being sent for S&M correction with the hideously scarred Ingrid. Morgan interviews Barbara's fashion photographer, Max Sintz, and ruffs him up for information. He discovers that Barbara was, working the valu- was wearing the valuable watch when she disappeared. Max Sintz's bodyguard, Dunda or Dudu attacks Morgan and forces him to flee, but not before Morgan kicks him in the balls. Flamend kidnaps another woman, Melissa, to use instead of Barbara, but keeps Barbara chained up in the basement waiting for her turn. Moser arrives, eager to begin the operation, but the process goes wrong and he destroys Melissa's face. Gordon chainsaws her to pieces and dumps her in the scene. At the nightclub, Flamend and Nathalie seduce actress Florence Gourin and bring her to the clinic. Nathalie has been using Barbara's credit card from which Morgan traces her whereabouts to Flamend's clinic. While interrogating Flamin, Morgan spots Nathalie wearing the missing watch. Gordon kills a nurse at the clinic who stumbles upon the incarcerated woman in the basement. Later that evening, Moser successfully removes Florence's face and transplants it onto Ingrid. Morgan returns to the clinic and after fighting off and killing Gordon, locates Barbara only for Nathalie to creep up and lock them both in the cell. With bodies piling up and stooping authorities closing in, Flamin, Nathalie, and Ingrid take Moser's advice and leave France. But not before they walled up the cells, burying Barbara and Morgan alive. Man, that's a big synopsis,
1: right? And oh my gosh, you worded it so. And, and, and when you when you worded that, I was just kind of laughing, going, "Oh my gosh, yep, yep, yep." And that too. And oh my gosh, believe it or not, that happens too.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a total <laughs> it's, mix it's and a of that,
1: ride, right? you know. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's a total mix of a lot of films as you watch it. I'm sure you picked up all the influences. Oh, that's from that. This is from this. This is from this. So what did you think of the film, Amber?
1: Yeah, so uh, I know we mentioned, oh, it has a little bit of the the December Christmas, a little bit of the New Year's, which is funny because the first time I watched it was just this past December because I was like, I'm going to add that to my it's a Christmas movie you know,
0: list. That's true. That's true. <laughs> so,
1: you know, I, I, I watched it and, then I rewatched it. Oh, uh, last night just to refresh myself and make some more proper notes for tonight. I will say this. I liked it more, uh, the second time. Okay. Um, or maybe I appreciated it more the second time. My biggest takeaway when I watch it is the concept of the face plant, uh, transplant is just as ridiculous as, Every single one of the characters in it. Everybody is just so into that character. And each character is a little bit crazy, you know? Um, and I and I love that, you know? But um, but I, I really like the movie a lot the second time. I, and it's funny because I've obviously not seen as much Franco as you, but from what I have seen, it just, you just go, whoa, this is sort of a little unexpected in a way. Yeah, um, yeah. but there's moments where you go, ah, yes, I'm reminded it's a Franco film, but it's got some, uh, production. It's got, some Oh yeah, music.
0: big time. He, had, he had probably, I don't know if this is his biggest budget, but at this time, I mean, this was a good budget for him. And like he said, I was watching that, uh, interview of him on the Shriek show DVD, which is probably the same when you, that you guys have, uh, it's the only one I think they put out. the. Uh, that face, uh, it's dark where I'm sitting, but yeah, this faceless one and Frego talked about, you know, the, he always said the more money he has, the more chances he has to be successful when making a movie. I was like, yeah, that's, that's a cool philosophy to have instead of, well, money handicaps you or whatever. I mean, with him, he got the big stars and stuff and, and, you know, um, yeah, I know definitely just like you're saying it, it definitely had way bigger budget, especially all the gore effects and everything, you know?
1: Right. Right. And you know, I think the Gore effects in it are fantastic.
0: Yeah, uh, totally. 1987, 88, right in that time frame of what was really cool, and you know, I totally uh, did a list of them that I figured we would talk about as we go through. But you know, sure, uh, sure. but totally, yeah, yeah, on, on that. Um, but yeah, um, let's talk about some of the actors first off. Um, this had, I don't know, I mean, it, like, like you were saying with the acting, everybody, each character was so different than each one. And Bridget Leahy, this was the third film he had done with her. Uh, she's really awesome. I like her a lot. She, uh, was a former, um, X-rated adult actress and did a couple of genre in films. And then she did some main, she kind of quit pornography after about three, four years and started doing like mainstream foreign films and art films and stuff. She's in a uh, Henry and June and she's in a couple other bit parts and stuff. But, uh, She's in Fascination, which is a film that I always recommend by uh, by um, Jean Roland. and uh, she's in uh, Burning Up Inside by Jess Franco and Dark Mission, which was made just before this uh, with Chris Mitchum as well, um, Robert Mitchum's son. You know, I, uh, Robert Mitchum's son, Chris Mitchum. I like him, but in this one, he's I, like there's a little too much wisecracking, and I know he's supposed to be this like wise ass detective, but it was like a little bit too much for my flavor. But you know, I don't know. It's so
1: funny you say that because you know, when you watch a movie, sometimes you kind of look, you, you're like, is it? Is it just me? Is it just me? Or yeah. does everyone else feel the same way? But I mean, so Christopher Mitchum, yeah, the scene with him and Telly Savalas, it's like they're both acting in two totally different movies in that sort of office room. Right. You know, Telly Savalas is being very Telly Savalas, and he's committed to the role, and he's studied, and he's using all his acting, you know, and and I'm sorry, but Christopher Mitchum, he's so, he's sort of bland. Yeah. Yeah, He's kind of like reading the lines, and and then when he goes in against Telly Savalas, I'm just like, oh my gosh, it's almost like they shot both their scenes on separate days and then edited them together. It's such a contrast. Look, I love it, but it's hilarious. It's funny, you know. Yeah,
0: and it was cool with like me studying Telly Savalas for this because he has like four scenes in the movie, and you know they fill them all in like probably one day, you know. Yes. and uh but it's cool that like the one scene he like really turns up his acting when he's talking about his daughter being kidnapped and like how he loves her and he like almost starts crying. he's like builds himself up, builds himself up. I was like, God damn, dude. He's like, okay. Here's my one scene that, you know, you're paying me. I'm going to really have this fucking
1: big,
0: big performance, you know? And yeah, I thought that was pretty cool.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. I thought the same thing too. I'm like, they're like, Hey, we got telly on this picture, you know, let's, yeah. uh, let's put his name on the poster art and his face. And we're really gonna, you know, well, like you said, they probably had him for a day and they did just all cause all his scenes were in that one office. If I remember totally. Right? Okay. Yeah, They're so, just
0: spaced throughout the movie, but it's like, yeah, him at the one desk and then he goes away for two weeks at the end for Christmas break and then comes back, but he's still in that same office and that, that last shot. So, you know, they probably did maybe a half day or a day and just shot all the scenes and that was it, you know?
1: That's so funny. And then, uh, the actress that you just brought up that was, uh, the adult star. I read about that too, but I didn't realize that so she's done more than one film.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. No, she's done quite a bit like from, uh, for about three or four years she did quite a bit of uh in Paris and in Great Britain, I believe, and Germany, I think, those three markets.
1: But um I was gonna say, uh yeah, I think I was talking to someone about her and they were like, Yeah, she was kind of like the the, the, the European Jenna Jameson, or it's like you said, you know. But I thought she did a really good job in this movie and I think good for yeah. her for making that transition uh, And it's funny because sometimes, you know, not to stereotype, but the adult stars, when they make that transition and they want to do legit movie work, they kind of still get typecast as that over the top, you know, sexy, sexy. She really carried herself very well, and she was very elegant and classy in this movie. Uh, Crazy.
0: Classy. (laughs) To me, she's almost like um, um, Uma Thurman, kind of. I mean, she kind of resembles her appearance, and she's real strong and and she could play evil. She could play elegant and, and she's strong and, and she's definitely like kind of a cult icon, not like Tora Santana and that, but definitely in those realm of like Elsa and Tora and those kind of, uh, you know, things. Cause she's like, I said, she's in fascination. I believe she's in grapes of death. She's in, uh, quite a few like cool yeah. horror films, you know? And yeah. And, and she's definitely a good actress in, in that. And, 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 uh, carries herself well, and like you're saying, she definitely has her own presence, and, and she's still doing, like, uh, film stuff and doing her own um, um, radio show, talk, talk uh, show things and stuff over there, so that's really cool, you know. But, uh, and then we had in the lead, um, Helmut Berger, who is in uh, a Dorian Gray, and in uh, Salon Kitty, I believe, and in uh, The Damned, and uh, he was a cool, cool actor, and he's still alive as well plays the doctor in this.
1: Um, does he has he yet done anything uh, recently or?
0: Yeah, I looked him up on IMDb and he has like two things still in completion that are like just wrapping up and stuff. So yeah, so he's still kick, kicking, making films and that. So that's really, really cool.
1: Oh great, could be good.
0: And then I think, and then like uh, reading different reviews, I think and. Um, Stephen Thrower writes that Anton Differing in this film, as as um, uh, the other doctor, um, um, uh, Doctor Mauer, his name, Doctor Mauer, um,
1: oh, the the evil evil German doctor, you mean? Or?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, doctor Moser. Moser. He, yeah. In in this guy's opinion, he thinks, uh, or Stephen Thrower thinks that that's like one of the greatest performances in a Jess Franco film is like that guy as the doctor. And if you watch a man and this was like, he thought he did two films after this and then he died. So like, this is like his third to last film before he passed away. And he, and he fucking gives a really good performance in this. He's evil. He carries it. He comes in and basically takes over when he comes in the room and like, you know, everybody steps aside. He's the man. Like they build him up and he comes in and, and the way he like the scene where he messes up the first, face surgery and he just like cuts that woman's face up real fast and just hit the look on him and he uh yeah and like reading through his career he always played like Nazis in films and that he's from Germany his family fled Germany during the war and then they came to Hollywood and stuff so then of course he played Nazis even though he didn't want to do that but you know but he had the real thin, thin nose and thin face and had the real regal look to him and stuff so he always played bad guys and played you know military people and heads of corporizations and this and that stuff. So
1: um, that's really interesting. You say that because you're absolutely right. It's funny. Cause when he, when we first meet him in the movie, it's like, Oh really? The, the evil German doctor. Yeah. Like but he really delivers with um, you know, like you said, he really commands the, uh, the room in the scenes. He doesn't play that, that over the top kind of evil eye. It's very professional. You know, um, and gentlemanly almost. And that makes it that much scarier almost. Like, you know, it's like, wow, he's he's in there and, uh, you know, you almost kind of trust him that he knows what he's doing. And I love when he begins the, the, the surgery, he says something about, you know, it, it's very much an honor for her to be the face transplant. She is helping advance science or something, you know.
0: Yeah. Uh, and, and- and then, like, the first girl's skin, he says it's too thin, and he starts, like, cutting it up. And then, you just, and then you wonder if, like, he messed it up so he could, like, do it again or if he's, like, really did mess it up just to mess it up or if he really was thin-skinned, you know.
1: Yeah. Oh, I didn't think of that. Interesting.
0: Yeah, because cause they talked about him having that obsession of just always wanting to work on live people, and he was kind of – they built him up as, like, this Dr. Frankenstein kind of guy where he's kicked out of this and he had to flee and this and that. He was known for that, you know. But, uh, but, yeah, so, and it was cool, looking up, um what's um, Bridget Leahy was born on October twelfth, and uh Anton Differing was born on October twentieth, so they're both Libras, like myself, so oh, I thought that was kind of cool,
1: <laughs> oh right on, right on,
0: yeah, that was fine, I was like, I was just having to look up their thing, um, so, yeah, so the film, it starts off uh with a faceless theme song. Uh, and it's just called faceless. And, uh, it's like a George Michael sound alike on this guy.
1: Is that the proper Wait, What, what was the proper name of the song in the movie? Is it destination? Unknown?
0: Or? No, it's just faceless.
1: Oh, that's just the name of the song. Yeah.
0: Oh. Cause if you look at the end credits, it says like, it, there's like a small box that says faceless. And then it has two credits and then it's got the guy's name on, on the bottom of it.
1: Oh my goodness. And boy, oh boy. Will that song stick in your head? Um, but I love, like, the, the moments that they cue the song up. It's, it's so funny. Um, but my favorite moment they cue it up is when it's actually playing in the nightclub. Yeah. You actually use it to where our, 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 our actors are hearing it, you know, in their scene. And I was like, oh, it's playing even in the
0: club, you know. <laughs> exactly. And it's funny, too, because that guy, like I was saying, sounded like George Michael. And then in 2011, he did a uh, George Michael cover on one of his albums. Oh
1: really?
0: Yeah, in the um, he did a English he did an Italian language cover of Careless Whispers on his album Romantico in 2011.
1: Oh, that nice. is So yeah,
0: so you know he totally had the George Michael thing. Like he just pushed that like thing, you know, because you listen to it, like you know, eighty seven, eighty eight. That was, I guess, Wham had probably already broken up. I'm not sure, you know. I I know George Michael, and then was around that time, eighty seven, eighty eight. Mm-hmm. So you know, so it was, and it's funny too, like reading that too, you know, if you listen to like Duran Duran, you know that it's like, kind of like, um, um, Roxy music, you know, they kind of took their sound from, and it's like, with this, this guy sound like George Michael, and it's like, the kind of orchestra, and the kind of mood that the song put, put forward was kind of funny, it was like, they're trying to rip off, you know, and, and automatically, I think with me, at least, you start off with a laugh, you know, when you watch the film, and it's like, you know. (laughs) Because don't
1: they open, they opened the open the film with that song, right. and um, our, our our lead young doctor is flanked by two ladies in the limo, um, I think is how it, it began, but you're right, it does start out with that song, as it should.
0: <laughs> yeah. and uh, So it starts off, too, with a fountain. There's no body of water in this movie, but there's a fountain right in the very beginning, and they show the fountain, so I made a mental note of that in my notes. I was like, okay, there's a fountain, but but there's Unfortunately, there's no boat in this movie, so that's, uh, yeah.
1: I, mean, I forgot. I forgot <laughs> the Franco film uh, checklist. We all have to remember these things, yeah. Yeah,
0: well, actually, here, let's, I'm going to go over that right now as we're talking about it. I got it in front of me. So there's no, uh, there's no body of water, but there's a fountain, so I don't, I'll say that doesn't really count. But it starts off the first scene, so I guess, I don't know, partial point. Uh, no sailboat, no boat of any kind. Um, there is dance scenes inside of a club. There's quite a few. They go to the club and they see everybody dancing and they have girls half naked and naked dancing, so that counts. Um, Palm trees. I don't really remember palm trees in this anywhere. Maybe in the road, the streets maybe, but I don't think so. In Paris, I don't think there's really palm trees. I'm not sure. Uh, No jungle sound effects in this. No sheepskin rug. Uh, No masturbation with a sea item. Uh, No, there's a lot of weird stuff in here, but definitely not that um red lights yes there is red lights at the end um there's a scene where they use those um and a couple of new things that i've um added on my list since i've done the podcast with you i have a uh, chained up women there's always a chained up woman in the jess franco film i've noticed he always has women chained up from like dr Orloff all the way to the end it seems like in most of his films and in this film, there's definitely chained up women in, in this film so or tied up at least uh but yeah, so um, okay. So with my notes, um, let's see. It's like you said. It starts off with the three, them, they go shopping, and then they're confronted by a past patient who throws uh, acid in their face, and that's our first gore effect of the film. Um, usually, with the Franco film, there's always like nudity, like within the first like two, three minutes, and then with the film, it almost seemed like there was gore in place of the nudity. Like this feature, this, this did have a lot of nudity to it, but it seemed like the the primary thing was showing the gore effects compared to the naked women. Like that was the primary object, I think on this film, getting those crossed. And in this, you see the first effect. Those the acid in the woman's face as instead of the doctor. And then she, they show it in quite detail of her face burning and fizzing and all that. So we see that right off the bat. Uh, And yeah, so that's the first, that's the first one on that. Um, What did you think about that effect?
1: Oh, I thought it was pretty cool. Um, I thought it was a good kind of setup, but, uh, but yeah, I thought it looked pretty legit. Yeah.
0: There's a lot of good practical effects on this. This is before CGI effects and all that stuff. So you see a lot of the cool, good, good layers that and that stuff. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So then we see, um, Carolyn Monroe is in this, which is really cool to see her in. Cause she had yeah. done, uh, uh, maniac and then had done a uh, Sinbad film and done a bunch of hammer films and that. So it was cool to see her in here as the uh, uh, Tilly Savalas' daughter, the fashion model. That's, you know, one of the higher-class uh, fashion models. And, uh, yeah, to have her in this was really cool. Um, I mean, her part isn't that big. She's mostly just shows, you know, she's being tortured or, like, chain or tied up mostly and begging and kind of being in a cell with most of the film. But she still does really good, I think.
1: Oh, know, I really so. liked her. Um, I. I she was one of the characters that I thought, boy, I really hope she makes it out. You know, because I really liked her. You know. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. She's she's really cool. I, I actually met her at a uh, Fangoria convention, like back in two thousand and five, two thousand and six, something like that. Oh, really? Yeah, she's really nice. I got a picture with her and all all that good stuff.
1: I, oh, she's just so stunning, just very
0: striking. Oh yeah, very very beautiful woman. Um. So yeah, so we see. Uh, uh, um. Reggie gives her coke, and then they abduct her. They, uh, and that scene actually surprised me. I didn't think the guy was in the back seat with the needle that actually made me jump. I was like, oh, shit, that, that totally surprised me. I didn't see that coming, so that was cool, you know. Um, so, yeah, and then you see that. Uh, and then there's, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of cool um, fish tank shots. Uh, Franco uses that not all the time, but he uses that in a few of his films where he'll shoot through the fish tank to an object behind it. And that always gives a nice layered effect with filmmaking. I always think that looks, looks cool. You know,
1: you're right. You're right. I forgot about, but now you're seeing that. I'm like, I,
0: right. Pretty cool. Yeah. I think there, I don't know if there's a fish tank in vampiros, lesbos, but I think girl from Rio, there's a couple of films of his I've watched recently where they shoot through the fish tank on a, a couple, but, but definitely not all of them, but that's something that he does like to use. That's in his bag of tricks. Um, Let's see. Uh, Okay, okay. one cool thing that um, – let's see what I got here. Okay, so yeah, one cool thing is that uh, when you go inside the institute, you see all the monitors, and that reminded me of A Thousand Eyes of Dr. Mabuse, uh, where Dr. Mabuse has all the monitors, and he watches people inside of the chambers and inside of all the rooms. And with this film, you have the doctors of the – um, Eyes without a face, or the taking off of the skin. You had Doctor Orloff, which we'll talk about here in a minute, um, and uh, all the other mad doctor things. So the Fritz Lang stuff, and and all the Doctor Mabuse and the creamy films and the Giallo stuff. So they like threw a lot of the kitchen sink in this film. So there's a lot of cool touches to other films like that. You know, and that's one thing I caught was the Doctor Mabuse monitors, where he sits back and watches everything unfold from his. Yeah. Um, but yeah, is there any notes you had that uh, up until this point that maybe you'd like to throw in?
1: Yeah, because we were talking about some of the the major characters. I guess yeah. one of the major minor characters who we don't even know his name, the sort of uh, uh, mute slave or whatever you want to call Gordon. it. Gordon. Oh, Gordon! Thank yeah, you, Gordon. Um, I'm like, oh my gosh, what a what a weirdo! Right? He's like got the dark eyes, slick back hair, and
0: and he has no eyebrows.
1: Oh, that's what it yeah, yeah, I couldn't tell. him like, there's something, I don't know what it was going on, but but yeah, very, very strange. And I guess he's just the on-site uh, you call it guy, and he's got his weird
0: room of horrors. Um Yeah, that kind of looked like hostile to me years later for some reason. I watched that scene, just the coloring of it. I was like, Oh, that kind of looks like something that a hostel would do years later, you know, that yeah. that scene. Yeah, and he's kinda of like Morpho, like who's the mute assistant in a lot of the Jess Franco films. Uh In Vampiros Lesbos, uh, she had Morpho as her assistant. And in a lot of Dr. Orloff, or uh, yeah, Dr. Orloff had Morpho and all that. It's usually the mute, kind of disfigured assistant. Kind of like the cabinet of Dr. Caligari had, I forgot the uh, assistant's name in that, but that guy that always would go around, you know, in the black turtleneck, you know.
1: Well, you're right, right. I I see what you mean, yeah. Um, But yeah, I I was going to. If I may add uh, again, when we talk, Gordon, I love where I guess it's the secretary is kind of hunting around the grounds. What's going on? What's going on? Oh my gosh! She walks into Gordon's room of horrors, and uh, you know is is you know freaking out. And I I love that when he you open one of the the cabinet doors, there's a, a, a head in there with worms all over it, and they're loud. I'm like, oh, because that's the sound that it makes. You know what I mean? are
0: gonna
1: see And then she hides in the closet and he does the whole Driller Killer bit, I guess. Good the- yeah. I think that's kind of a fun gag, even though we-, we don't get to see a whole lot, but it's played really well. Uh, and then but when she dies, I'm just like, well, now who's gonna answer the phone calls?
0: That's true. That's true, and that was her whole thing. She was probably like kept in the dark by the whole thing, and, and there was always that one door at the end of the hallway. And you know, that's like the good help. He like totally had her totally oblivious to everything. Probably gaslit her, like we were talking about in in the other episode. I'm sure she was gaslit. Oh no, there's nothing going on beyond that door. You're crazy. That's just you know. That's just my office. You know.
1: <laughs> right, right. Because I thought the whole time I'm like, does she or anyone else really know what's going on? Like the one patient we meet early on. That's like, I know what you guys are doing here. You know. Yeah. And I'm like anybody else just a second? So I learned towards the end, I'm like, Oh, she was truly unaware and horrified to find out. Um, but yeah, <laughs> anyway. but anyway, I thought Gordon was a ridiculous character.
0: Yeah. Gordon, Gordon definitely, uh, is like the fucking hired hit man does it all. So, um, so yeah, so yeah, it says, uh, so we go to cut the, um, to a, um, New York shot of the twin towers, which is kind of cool. That was a stock shot they had. And because I don't know if Telly Savalas' scenes were filmed in Paris, which I assume they were because there's a picture I've seen on the extras of Telly Savalas, Bridget Leahy, and Chris Mitchum kind of posing together. And that might have been in the contract signing or what, but I imagine his scenes were filmed in Paris. I'm sure I don't think it was filmed in New York. You know, they might have just used that New York shot as just a establishing shot from something else and then just, you know as a pickup shot or they bought it or whatever. Anyway, so then we cut to uh Tully Savalas, who uh hires Chris Mitchum, plays Sam Morgan and uh I have my notes like I mentioned before, too many wise cracks. Um and uh one thing I always like about Robert about uh Chris Mitchum and now that he's older, he didn't do in this film as much, but he always does the um Robert Mitchum look. If you see him in movies, he always kinda of squints his eyes a little bit and looks slightly like he's looking over your shoulder. It's like, if you have Chris Mitchum, especially now, like, that's what you got to have him have, it because you get that little bit of Robert Mitchum in your film, you know, just that, little...
1: right, right. that signature. Yeah. Kind of, uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, that's one thing he didn't really do in this. His whole gimmick was chewing the gum, and that was his, like,
1: Oh, gum. that was crazy.
0: Yeah, and he'd take it out. No, no smoking. Oh, I have a piece of gum. And then, you know, and the other detective, he called Inspector Clouseau. He made fun of that guy. And he was the gum, and. Just kept yeah, yeah, kind
1: of over, uh, like you said, the kind of want more, you know, kind yeah. of.
0: <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. that's just, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of cheesy. um So, yeah. So then we get to, um, uh, you talk about Gordon, the henchman. And um, one thing I liked about um, Rajit's character is like the little kink she had of like a, um, of a stealing things from the people that she did things to. And like, that was her thing to fill that rush. She took the gold thing off her. And then the woman, she hits with the uh, syringe in the eyeball. She takes her necklace, the pearls or whatever, and, it's like, she always has to steal that thing. And then when she got the credit card, which got her in trouble, she, uh, you know, that was her kink of, like, stealing something to get that rush. So she was a, a kleptomaniac, I guess you'd call that, that, that she uh, right. that, you know.
1: And um, it's interesting you say that because sometimes in movies they'll have that thing where someone took something and oh voila we we see them wearing it or having it on their person later on as a clue, but they really kind of set it up as like this is what she does to everybody. It's not just there's one red herring. It's part of like her true character. You know? Good call.
0: Good call. Yeah. So totally. yeah, because that because that gold item does figure into the film, but like as you're saying that's just part of her everyday thing. And that's one of the things she does to like keep her going, yeah. like her extra little drug. Um, and then, uh, so yeah. So, okay. So now um, going back. I kind of jumped over a few things. Um, another gore effect. Okay. So after the acid throw in the face, we have a, a woman's arms cut off uh, the woman in the padded cell. Uh, Bridget comes in to kind of like feed or whatever. She reaches out to like strangle her. And then uh, Gordon comes in with a hatch and just cuts her arm straight off.
1: That's right.
0: Yeah. yeah, that was like a brutal pretty brutal like effect. It's like, God damn, dude. And you see yeah, that, you know.
1: Again, like you said, it's one of the moments where you, you don't see it coming and it's just like we know she's gonna get gonna get it, but we don't know what. And it's like holy shit, you chopped her arm off, you know.
0: Yeah, it's like a really like Jesus, you know, like a big jump jump thing. <laughs> and, all, and then also too after that we have the needle and the eye of the patient and they yep. really go into loving like shop probably more than zombie did. I think like they really show that like two or three different angles of the needle going into the eye above it and a different shot yeah. of right to the eyeball and into it. And yeah, I, I'm it, that,
1: that it was one of my notes. Cause it was like, they really made sure everybody saw the work they did yeah. on that. And the room was well lit, but, but yeah, it even made, made me just kind of get a little queasy. It was just like, Oh geez. Pretty good though. Pretty good gag.
0: Yeah, that was a good like that's there are always like certain ways of like, especially with these films, like the the different varieties of kills and always the like things to the eyeballs was always a a staple and there's certain films would have that kill in there. And it's like people would search out certain films for certain kills like, oh, I want to see the end like, like, you know, zombie back in the day, like zombie was always known for the zombie versus the shark and the wood going into the woman's eyeball. Like those were the two big selling points that people always talked about, you know
1: if you buy a zombie t-shirt you can get it that's the that's like a signature <laughs> yeah <is>. totally totally <laughs> yeah <laughs>
0: which is great because you know like that was probably cashing in on jaws like in a sort of roundabout way you know a couple years later right around there so which i'm always yeah. for jaws rip offs. that's like a beautiful thing <laughs> so like for me uh my highlight of the film was to see howard vernon do one last appearance as dr orloff in this uh the scene where they go visit him to find out about Dr. Maher. uh, You see him, and unfortunately, like I'd read about, written about, it's a beautiful scene, but it's too short. And when I was watching this, I kind of had a feeling of like a Quentin Tarantino where like this movie is like a Jess Franco universe. You have these characters from different films in this past, and now it's like years later, and they're kind of like in the universe. And you had Lena played Dr. Orloff's wife, and Dr. Orloff kind of gave up the surgery and the evilness because he went back to his Catholic upbringing and, and married the woman that he loved and that kept him on the straight and narrow. So he, so the, so he wouldn't help them and, and do the surgery and that. And um, Lena Romaine's in this for just that short scene as, as his wife with the old age makeup and she has her hair great and that. And, uh, the scene where him discussing Dr. Bauer and building him up and, and them visiting him was I thought a really cool scene and that kind of wrapped right. up that character in the Jess Franco universe, you know.
1: Right, 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 right. Absolutely,
0: yeah. Which is cool that these films have universes like that that years later Marvel and and other filmmakers did later on, you know, it's both these guys were doing it years years ago, having a character across twenty or thirty years in different films show up, even if it's for five minutes or whatever, it just References all that, or even talking about the characters you know and like talking to him on the phone even if you don 't see him or whatever, but just keeping that continuity running is yes. pretty cool you know
1: of that alive yeah yeah Absolutely. and that 's
0: something that really doesn 't get talked about a lot, but having its own universe like that because he he, he has that with a few characters uh, the influences he 'll take from Dracula or from Orloff and Orloff with two fs or Orloff with one f there 's different Orloffs in the in the franco universe and and there's a Dr. Mabuse. He uses Dr. Mabuse a few times as well. And, and so he uses other, yeah, Inspector Seward from the Dracula. And so he'll use characters over and over again and kind of build his own universe, which is pretty cool because then it's like you're watching a lot of stuff and all it connects in a roundabout way, sort of, you know, or these sections of it connect. But, yeah, so you had uh, Anton Differing, and he comes in, and uh, my favorite part was when he was uh, – um, talking uh to uh, ingrid and he goes uh you must have confidence it's the only way that we'll succeed and he goes i've always believed in myself as he's like talking to her and it shows that he's such a good bad guy like a darth vader or somewhere he's just like i've always believed in myself this is who i am which is a good thing but it's an egotistical strength thing too we're kind of like scared like oh shit you know and you kind of want to get out of his way you know so yeah so yeah I, I definitely thought he was really 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 great in this part like i was saying before in the top of the top of the film or top of the episode. Um, yeah. And then also, so then we have uh, with him, we have a couple good gore scenes. We have the first face surgery where he has the mishap and he, and the woman's skin is too thin. You see it start breaking as he cuts it. And then, so then he gets all nervous and just starts cutting away at the rest of her face. And her eyeballs are looking around and then, uh, and then her head is chainsawed off and kissed by Gordon after he chainsaws off her head of the corpse, which was pretty brutal. I thought that poor gal and her eyes were moving too the whole time as she was like being chainsawed. So it was like, that was an extra little brutal part for me. I was like, Jesus, you know,
1: I know. Yeah. It, that was a, that was a pretty rough scene. I was like, Oh my gosh.
0: Yeah. 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 So there's definitely eighties gore effects in this. And then, uh, and then um, what's cool is then we have a scene later on where Ingrid is like really horny. And she wants Brigitte to go out and like pick up a guy and they pick up this guy, and they go back to the place. And uh, he, and she has this, like, full mask on her face. And he goes, I want to see who I'm going to fuck. And he's like a total jerk, fucking asshole guy. He pulls off the thing, sees her face, and then Brigitte takes uh, scissors and stabs him right through the front of the throat all the way back. And that was in uh, Bloody Moon that Franco did as well. So he used that effect before with the scissors going through the neck, which was a cool effect for that.
1: Okay. That was like it.
0: three years before this, and that's out from Severn too, as well.
1: Oh, it is. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Severn puts out Bloody Mood on Blu-ray. And they have a good copy of that.
1: Oh, um, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because it's a it's a short scene, but uh, it is memorable as soon as you bring it up. Um, but I love that you know she has to go out on the prowl and look for uh, I guess like a male prostitutes or jiggle, or whatever you, I don't know what they're called, but yeah, I love, yeah, yeah. I, I, Two things I love. I love that when he comes back to the room, he's wearing like a, a well-starched uh, baby blue button-up business.
0: <laughs> good call, good call.
1: You know, and I mean, hey, you know, uh, you know, it's his own style, whatever. But, um, but I love that she stays in the room on the other side. And I'm sure uh, she does that to just kind of make sure everything goes over smoothly. And she's right. like protecting her friend. But like in an instant, right? The second that she sees that he removed her mask, it's like unforgivable, scissors. You know, not yeah. a bit later. Like, not yeah, I of- thought that
0: scene was going to go a little bit longer than it did. It's like kind of quick. He just like goes into her it, like, takes the mask right off. I was like, wow, I thought he'd kiss her a little bit, and they do a few things, and then the mask oh. comes off or something, and then he'd get killed or whatever, you know?
1: Right, right, right. Like she, she, uh, she got nothing out of it. Yeah, nothing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like you said, it was so quick. It was like, oh, gee, well, I guess on to the next. So. Yeah, she oh, yeah. got more
0: out of Gordon earlier when they had the S&M training for Gordon yeah. when he was punished, you know,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: so good, yep. Um, oh, man. That's and good. then uh, the next Gore effect we have after that, the seventh one of the film, we have actually nine Gore effects in this film. Uh, the seventh one was the one you had mentioned earlier, the drill in the forehead with the lady in the locker. Oh. In that one you see a a brief glimpse of it where it touches her forehead and then you see from the outside of the locker where the blood runs underneath, which is a which is a cool effect of blood running out from under the door, you know, that implies yeah. a lot without having to show either, you know.
1: I agree, yeah, it's a good little, little. Pay, you still get the payoff and yeah. sometimes, I mean, look, everyone loves to see firsthand every angle of those gore effects, but sometimes it's, it can be just as effective and cool as maybe you don't show everything, you know.
0: Yeah, and like and like we are saying, there's like nine gore effects in here, so it's like, you know, you don't have to show every single one all the way through, it's like, the ones that you don't show, it's just as memorable. People say it and talk about it, and that saves you a lot of money too. If you, you know, yeah. that's one thing about watching these films. Like as a filmmaker, you can learn from all these, you know, how he does it, and a lot like tell you some all this figure out how many days they had him, all the shots you need to film them with, how many hours, and the gore effects you plot all out, and you can really learn a lot about filmmaking watching these films and studying them as well. It's it's always a nice tool, you know. Absolutely. Um, and then uh, we have. Uh, The second freight, the face transplant. uh, The faceless victim sees the face removed. That was a really good effect, I thought. Yeah. Yeah, They take the they cut the whole face off. They hold it out and then shows it to her. And uh, and so going back to the gore effects, one thing it was funny. um, I'd made notes. I want to talk about. um, Okay, so we talk about the chainsaw beheading. It says take that pieces. So I guess in Pieces, there's a scene of a chainsaw beheading. I haven't seen Pieces for quite a few years.
1: I think so. I haven't seen it in a while either, but um, I believe so.
0: Okay. And then we have a hypodermic needle to the eye, which is um, Dead and Buried, which I totally recognize that. Uh, Dead and Buried, you ever see that by Gary Sherman?
1: No, I haven't. Yeah, there's
0: a nurse that does the... uh, Does the uh, needle to the eye, to the patient that's in the bed, they can't move, and then the needle goes into the person's eye and they kill them that way. That's a good, I think it's 81, 82, something like that, maybe 83. Yeah, Gary Sherman, dead and buried. It's out through Blue Underground, I believe. Um, Okay. And then we have um, Power Drill Through the Cranium, Driller Killer, of course. Uh, Maggot Infested Severed Head from a.
1: (laughs) That makes lots of noise.
0: Yeah, from a um, Macabre. Have you seen Macabre? No. Okay, so yeah, they had that. And then, of course, the um, removal of the entire face, which is then displayed to the horrified donor, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Yeah. Okay. Which I caught that when, uh, when they, uh, I think it was uh, um, Chop Top did it, I think. But yeah, so it's cool. Like, There's always these homages to the other horror films as you watch this, like I was talking about with... Dr. Baboose and Dr. Orloff, and this is a cool film because there's a lot of references to other classic horror stuff along the way as it's written, you know.
1: And I think what's cool about it is, like you said, there's so many references people pick up, but I feel like no two people will all pick up on the exact same, right? It'll be a moving experience for everybody,
0: you know. Yeah. Yeah, and it was cool, too. um, Like you were saying, the budget on this was really good. Uh, it was filmed in English, so uh, the dubbing on it was really good. It seemed like a few parts, the sync was off a little bit, but not too bad, you know.
1: Yes, right, 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 yeah.
0: Um, but yeah, and then I guess the gal that was uh, in the wheelchair that was like, saw everything, was trying to get him in trouble, she was a big actress as well. I, I didn't recognize her, but I looked her up, and I guess she's in Babette's Feast or something. Oh. So she's like a famous French actress, I guess, from the seventies. I'll have to look her up more and see some of the films she was in. But yeah, because if you look like on the poster and on the, or even on the DVD box, her name is kind of highlighted like in a little box or something.
1: Oh, like it's a big, like they're touting it. Yeah,
0: yeah. Actually, not on the DVD. I'm sorry, but on the, uh, like on the poster and that. Yeah, her her name and and they had made a big deal about her being over, you know. But with us, the American audience, you know, she doesn't we mean as watch much. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so then in the end uh, they basically pull off the face transplant and, uh, well, Sam breaks in and they kidnap him and lock him in the cell with uh, Tully Savalas' daughter and they build the wall in front of him kind of like uh, Edgar Allan Poe kind of build the wall in there on him. Uh, was it was a black cat and uh, the other one, or the cask of armadillo, one of those two, and they, so they have build the wall in there. And also, too, they use that in um, – Something else I just watched recently. I forgot a movie that they had put somebody behind the thing and walled them in. But anyway, yeah, that, that's a common device. But So, yeah, so they walled them in, and then you realize that uh, he tells Tully Savalas – that you know, he's, it's Christmas Eve and he's going to go check out the place. You don't hear from him. He's sitting in the Marines. Right. And Tully Svalis checks a message like after the New Year. I think it was like the 3rd or the 4th by the time. Because they do the New Year's thing on New Year's, and then it's like a day or two later when Tully's Svalis comes in and check. So basically they're in that cell for like 10 days or something, somewhere around there, from like the 24th to like the 3rd. So um, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Yeah, it's about 12 days. So I don't know if they're alive or dead. So that's the thing. It's the ending. You don't know if – because you know, not tell as as calls to rescue them, but you don't know if they're alive or dead or how it ends. It's kind of open-ended.
1: And, uh, you know, it, it's interesting you say that because on one hand, I go, oh, I like that the bad guys kind of get away with it at the end. But then when I watched it the second time, I thought, well, now am I sure that they – for sure. Because on one hand, it seems like they're toasting and the, the, the operation was successful. Um, they hid the evidence best they could. But then, like you said, at the end, we see Kelly kind of saying, send in the Marines. And I'm like, oh, when I saw it the second time, I thought, wait, did they totally get away with it then? And then, yeah, then the two survivors survive, you know? Yeah, you
0: know? so you don't know. I mean, in the time frame, they could have easily gotten their cars and driven off somewhere and done something by the time they got there. Or I mean, who knows? It's totally open-ended, which is kind of a cool way, because uh, I guess Franco talked about, too, in the commentary, or in the uh, bonus thing he had talked about, they were going to make it a happy ending where Telly Zavales comes in and they kind of find his daughter and he hugs her and stuff. But Franco said, no, you should kind of do it this way instead and kind of make it where maybe it's not a happy ending. You don't know you know, until you talk about it, which is good. I think anything that you have to talk about like that if it, if it, with an ending with people is better than just something clean cut. I think it's, you know, leaves more to interpretation.
1: Right. I think I really like the ending because, yeah, after, even after the second time, I go, well, you know, what really did happen? Sure, anything could happen, you know?
0: yeah and especially the times we're living in too, where kind of like evils kind of like triumphing in the end. I was kind of like, Ooh, I kind of had a weird chill watching that. You know, it's like, you know, right. the rich yeah. evil people win. You're like, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, I definitely really enjoyed this film. Um, definitely had that really cheesy song running through it. There's a lot of humor to it. Um, typical Franco nudity. Uh, there's way more gore in this film than any of his other films. I think big time. Um, and, uh, no, I, it definitely it turned out really well. No, I, I definitely liked it a lot. Uh, is there any closing things that you'd like to say, any notes that you didn't bring One
1: more note I, I wrote down, and I guess I'm going to try and loop it around the beginning note I had, how all the characters are just crazy. Uh, they, they, they do crazy things. They get away with crazy things. I love the scene where I think it was the first woman's face doesn't work out. And the doctor's like, well, I guess you need to go get another beautiful young woman with great skin. And they're like, let's just go to the club. It's what we do. And, you know, and then they bring home uh, the beautiful actress and whatnot. But I love that. Uh, I forget what she said. Yeah, let's go to a nightclub and find a beautiful girl, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah. And they also made a joke about finding a virgin in, in Paris, too, where they were looking for the skin, that's, which was right. funny. you know.
1: <laughs> right, right, right. But yeah. It's yeah, it's so much over the top, but still believable and a lot of fun. And, yeah,
0: yeah, very very serious performances. Everybody took it as, like, even though it was a camp film, they didn't really take it in a camp way. You know, it was very uh, totally played for believability and and
1: it to- totally
0: was good, you know. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yep. Well- well, cool. Well, uh, I think this is going to wrap up Episode 18 of The wow. Franco Observer, film Faceless, film 157. I give it a thumbs up. What about you, Amber?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thumbs absolutely, We're watching it a second time,
0: yeah. Yeah, we, uh, did you watch the Shriek Show DVD? Is that how you watched it?
1: I saw it on uh, YouTube.
0: Oh, wow. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. So yeah, I have the Faceless the Shriek Show DVD, which is about 20 years old. This came out in like 2000, actually 2004 this came out. So yeah, 17 years.
1: So it's included on that DVD there you have.
0: Yeah, it's got the, uh, which is cool, it's got audio commentary with Jess Franco and Lena Romay, interviews with Franco, Lena Romay, Chris Mitchum, Carolyn Monroe, trailer and photo gallery. But uh, they're trying to get this put out again on Blu-ray and, you know, upgraded and such, because yeah, like I said, it's it hasn't had a release since 2003 and it's definitely a high budget film and it should be on Blu-ray definitely. And they could port over the existing commentaries and it would be a good purchase. So
1: I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. One mm-hmm.
0: uh, macabro has one Franco film. They said they're going to release this year, but I don't know what it is yet. So we'll see what that is. I don't know. Oh,
1: right, right, right. Yeah. yeah at
0: the top of the year, they said, this is what we're releasing for 2021. And they said one, just Franco film, but they, that's all they said. So, so we'll see who that is, but yeah, it'd be really cool if it was faceless. But already, um, well, uh, is there any um, is there anything you have coming up that you're looking forward to? Any projects? Any shows? Any events? Anything? I know, um, I know you're in LA and it's COVID time, but you got anything?
1: Well, you know, uh, with uh, you know, I volunteered at American Cinema. That we were supposed to be putting on the Sundance Film Festival, with the Mission Tiki, at the end of the month, uh, but then at the last week, they decided to cancel that just because the numbers have gotten so bad in LA. Um, so a little bit of a bummer, but I respect their decisions. So hopefully when things get better we'll have some you know I've been I've been living off the of any drive in screenings I can go to. <laughs> so.
0: Yeah, I've been seeing you were talking earlier before the interview about uh different merchandises that I've been getting. I've been seeing all the cool movies you've been getting to see in LA down in the drive ins. I'm very jealous of all the cool 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s movies and more that you've seen down there has been really cool.
1: Yeah, they've been giving me life. It's great because you know I miss the theaters, but hey, I love that there's this kind of new revival of the drive-in, so I'm there for it.
0: (laughs) What is the company? Is that uh, what is that video?
1: Vineland. There's one called the Vineland Drive-in, and then a little further east is one called uh, the Mission Theater.
0: But is it, is it like uh, cinema video or what's the company that's putting on these shows? Is it like oh, a group? Or?
1: So the, um, I see what you're asking. So the American cinema which is, you know, nonprofit uh, theater group, we have the Egyptian and Hollywood, the arrow in Santa Monica. Um, they are doing some programming here and there at the violent Drive, And it's sort of a collaboration, you know?
0: Right. Yeah. No, yeah. They've been, yeah, I've been seeing, uh, yeah, all the, the cool zombie stuff and the, cool Giallos and all the different stuff you've been seeing and stuff. Yeah. And then we also, I saw that uh, Antonio Sabato uh, died and uh, he'd watched uh, one of his films. Uh, yeah. I just watched the um, Eurocrime um, documentary and he is um, interviewed in that. And he was a very interesting man.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Now I want to, yeah, watch more of his stuff with the, his, his, the I think legacy having been passed.
0: Yeah. Nah, so rest in peace, Antonio Sabato. So, alrighty. Well, uh, thank you very much again for joining me. I do appreciate it. And uh, this is us signing off from the beautiful state of California. Adios.
1: <laughs> Bye.